Well, it's a privilege to be here. This is my first Sunday as intern pastor, and so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, we're really glad that you're here, especially if you're a first-time visitor. We're so glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning. I do want to make just a couple brief announcements, a couple brief announcements. I'm going to begin a weekly email to everybody that's on our email list. I've done this where I've been an interim pastor at other churches, and it's just a way for me to communicate things that are going on in the church. But in order to we communicate by email, I, we need to have your email address. Sometimes that changes. Um, so in front of you, there's a card that says uh, Calvary West Hills, and it looks like this. It's the larger of the two. And if you wouldn't mind just putting your name and email, if, if you don't think we have it, if we have it, that's okay. But if it's changed or if we don't have it, uh, I promise you we're not going to spam your inbox. I'll send out one email a week. It will be called From the Pastor. And the point of the email is to inform you about stuff coming up, encourage you, and also just let you know a little bit about what God's doing at the church. Because sometimes there's stuff going on here that you have no idea, and it'll be encouragement to you. And it'll let you know that during this time of transition, God's not paused using this church. God is still using this church in amazing ways. So if you could fill this out, that would be helpful. And as you leave, you know there's these black boxes in the back. If you just kind of look at the exits, you can just slide those into one of the black boxes and we will update our contact list and you'll be getting that email from me, which will be great. The other thing I want to mention is that we have a bulletin with notes on it. And, you know, one of the things that's important to me is that this this church is not just for those of us uh, who are adults. If you're a teenager or a young person, uh, I want to encourage you to really pay attention and take notes. So I'm going to start something today. If you're 18 and younger, I don't know how many 18 and younger we have in here, but if you're 18 and younger, and if you're in the service and you fill out the bulletin and turn that into me, I'm going to be in the foyer or the lobby after every sermon, and if you hand that to me, if I collect 10 of those from you, uh, you're going to get a $10 gift card to a local ice cream place or something. Now, why am I doing that? Because, um, because young people can pay attention and they can learn. And this will be an encouragement. I've done these at some other churches and it's, it's generally helpful. And there's people that come up and go, I'm paying attention now. Give me my ice cream card. That's okay. So again, that's not for the young at heart. That's actually for the like legally under 18. So just, just a, a point of clarification. Lastly, just a quick announcement where we're going. I'm going to be preaching a message today um, out of John 2. Starting next week, we're going to begin a five-week sermon series called Little Book, Mighty Message. And for the next five weeks... We're going to be looking at the five smallest books in the Bible. I'm not going to tell you what they are. But every Sunday, I'll be preaching a message from that small book of the Bible. So we'll cover the entire book, for instance, one week of Obadiah. You say, I'm not familiar with that book. Perfect. You will be after I preach the book of Obadiah. So you're going to learn some things. Maybe you're going to learn some things from some books you've never really studied before. So that'll begin next week. Today we're going to be in John chapter 2. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read that in just a moment, then I'll pray. John chapter 2, and I'll say this 
many times, but my job is to preach the word. The Spirit's job is to give us eyes and ears to hear and apply. But your job is to match what I'm saying with God's word. So we all have a job to do in this time of preaching. So having your Bible open will aid you in following along what I'm saying from the scripture. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along as I read it. It should be on the screen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there was some six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of the water out and take it to the ma- now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, And did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would be exalted. We're mindful, God, that you are in heaven and you are holy and you dwell in inapproachable light. And we're mindful that we are sinners in need of grace, in need of forgiveness, And we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Even right now, Lord, we confess our sins. We ask, Lord, that you'd forgive us. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, would you wash us clean once again? And God, this morning, we need daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray for that. And we know that that's not just the food we eat. That's the word that comes from the Bible by which you feed our souls by which you revive us. So, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, revive us. If there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, bring them to faith. If there's anyone here that's wandering or straying, bring them back. If there's anyone here that feels weak, feels discouraged, build them up, God. Lord, each one of us comes to church with someone that's heavy on our hearts, maybe a child, maybe a grandchild, maybe a spouse. Lord, will we just lift up their names before you silently right now? We unburden ourselves, Lord. We cast our cares on you because you care for us. And Lord, in life there is grief. But Jesus bore our grief. He carried our sorrow. So God, we exchange it this morning for your joy. Would you, God, restore joy in us through your word, In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's important in life to have a focus. Everybody has to be focused on something. 
I wonder this morning what you're focused on. Oftentimes our problem in life is that we're focused on the wrong things. Not bad things, just things that ought not consume us. Plans that consume us, worries that consume us, fears that consume us. What if, what if consumes us? And so we become paralyzed when we're focused on the wrong things. And the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And if we will fix our eyes on Jesus, we will see his power and his sovereignty and his love for us. He loves us. And it will breed, it will bring energy and encouragement to our hearts. It'll enable us to keep going when we feel like giving up. This story, the story of Jesus' first miracle, is here so that we would be built up in our faith and focus on Jesus. Anybody in here like a good mystery novel or a whodunit or a thriller movie or a TV show? Well, basically, they all follow the same formula. You show up on the scene of something that's happened. You don't know what happened. You piece together the details. And after it's over, you have a better understanding of what happened and why it happened. Does that make sense? This story, this story is a little bit of a whodunit. Because we arrive at a wedding feast and we read about a miracle and by the end of the story, we should be able to piece together the details and be able to understand something that will help us focus on Jesus. Where to start? Look at verse 11. This is a good place to start. Verse 11 tells us that this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. So you might not know much about Christianity, but you probably know that Jesus turned water into wine and Jesus walked on water. You probably know those two things. I mean, even if you're brand new to Christianity, you probably know those two things. But why did Jesus turn water into wine? John, the author of the book, tells us it was to manifest his glory. What does it mean to manifest something? When we think of manifest, we think of like an airline industry or something. But to manifest in the Greek means to shine a spotlight on something. I wonder if you've ever been to a play or to a concert, maybe the Hollywood Bowl or something like that, where the artist comes out on stage and the spotlight shines, and no matter where you are in the audience, you know where you're supposed to be looking. John says you should be looking at Jesus. If you're young, you should be looking at Jesus. If you're middle-aged, Jesus. If you're If you retire Jesus, no matter where you are at in life, you should be focused on Jesus, and not just on Jesus, but on the glory of Jesus. Jesus does this miracle to manifest, to shine a spotlight on his own glory. What is glory? That's a word we use a lot, isn't it? Glory. But glory is one of those words we use and often don't know what it means. The word glory refers to all that is great and praiseworthy about God. 
So Jesus does this to shine a spotlight. He is manifesting his glory. Jesus is center stage, and there's a spotlight on him. Later in the book of John, in chapter 20, John says, I've written these things so that you might believe. You might believe. And so John is telling us this story so that you would believe in Jesus and see his glory. Jesus is glorious. Whatever this morning you're fixated on, this story wants you to shift your focus from whatever, is, whatever you're fixated upon and to fix your focus on Jesus and on his glory. So Christ's glory is the key to understanding the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Well, what are the details? Let me share with you some details that matter. If you're following along on the bulletin, let's look at some details that matter. First, you'll notice the characters. You'll notice the characters. Did you see in verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Well, you know the mother of Jesus. She's Mary. But where's Joseph? Well, the traditional understanding is that Joseph, by this point in Jesus' life, has probably died. And so Mary's there, and Jesus is there, and Joseph's not. It's not that he didn't want to hang out with the family. It's that Joseph isn't in any of the adult scenes of Jesus' life, probably because he's passed. But it says that someone else is there. Look what it says. It says that Jesus' brothers are there. We're told that his brothers are there. We see this in verse 12, that Jesus' brothers are there. Now, some of you might know that Je- not know that Jesus had brothers. Of course, Jesus was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, but Mary went on to marry Joseph, and they had other kids. And Jesus' brothers, we might call them half-brothers, but they were brothers They were with Jesus. Now, it's an interesting fact that Jesus' brothers pop up in other parts of the Bible. For instance, James is one of the brothers of Jesus. But Jesus' brothers don't believe in him until after he's risen from the dead. Jesus is there. Mary's there. Joseph's not there. Jesus' brothers are there. And then we're told that there's the bridegroom, and then there are servants You notice that it says there are servants. We're not told their names, just servants. And they're important because they carry out in verse 7 the action. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And it says they filled them to the brim. Who are these servants? We don't know. But they're important, aren't they? Well, what does this tell us about the kingdom? This tells us that Christ displays his glory through ordinary people, no-name people. Jesus displays his glory through people whose names don't even make it into the book. No one knows who they are. In modern terms, they have no following. They're not influencers. But people that obey Jesus put his glory on display and play an important part in the kingdom of God. The characters... And we, as believers, are characters in Christ's kingdom. Second, the second, this takes place at a wedding. 
Have you ever thought about why Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding in Cana? By the way, Cana is about four miles from where Jesus would have grown up. It's not far from home. He's been on a little bit of a trip with his mothers and his disciples and his brothers. By the way, this isn't all 12 of the disciples. This would have only been about five or six of the early disciples. Jesus is on a trip. He's just been baptized and he stops at a wedding. And it's at a wedding that Jesus displays his glory. Now think with me, why would Jesus choose a wedding to display his glory? Was that just an accident? No, of course not. You might know that a wedding is a recreation of God bringing together a man and a woman. And if you go back in human history to the dawn of time in the Garden of Eden, who was it that brought together the first man and woman? God did. And Adam and Eve, did they obey God and do what God told them to do? No. They sinned, and sin entered the world. And everything that's wrong in the world stems from the sin of the first man and woman that God brought together. But Jesus has come into the world to bring about a new kingdom and to make what's wrong right. And he begins the public ministry of his kingdom on the third day, it says in verse 1, at a wedding. You think that's a coincidence? Not a chance. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, how does human history end? It starts with a wedding of God bringing together a man and a woman. How does human history end? It ends with a wedding. Christ, the groom, the church, the bride. Are you a believer in Jesus? You'll be there. So this is important that Jesus chooses a wedding to display his glory in his first miracle. Number three, the third detail that matters, the third detail that matters is Jesus' interaction with his mother, if you see in verse, in verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus says to him, woman, now let's just stop right there for a moment. <laughs> if I can just speak a word to the children here. This is not what mommy wants to hear. Now, let me be very careful. Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's not sinning. Jesus is righteous. He sins not. He's like us, tempted but without sin. Jesus is not being sinful, but he is being stern. Now, the question for us is, why is he being stern? Well, notice what he says to her. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? D.A. Carson points out that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is showing something very important. Jesus is showing us at the beginning of his ministry that he is not under any human manipulation. He's not under any human control. He doesn't take commands. He is the Lord. Jesus wouldn't be the first person who publicly was in charge, but privately was controlled by someone else. You know, we've all seen The Wizard of Oz, 
And we've been trained to think that there's someone behind the curtain who's really in control. And Jesus is showing us, I'm in control. If we want to put it in the modern terms, he's showing us that he's no mama's boy. He's in control. He's the Lord. He's been a dutiful, respectful, loving son. And he will be, by the way, for the rest of his life as he's on the cross. Who's in the audience? Mary. Mary is. He loves her to the end. He's respectful to the end. So why does he say this? To teach us a lesson. That Jesus is Lord. He's king. He's under no one else's control. He's not under your control. He's not under my control. He doesn't ride for our brand. We ride for his. To use an old western television term. Jesus' interaction with his mother matters. The fourth detail that matters is Mary teaches us a proper posture towards Jesus. Notice what she says. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Let me tell you something. If Mary were to be here this morning and we were to say, Mary, here's a microphone. Tell us something that you want us to know. I think one of the things Mary might say is, hey, you know my son Jesus? Do whatever he tells you. Mary is showing us that she gets his point. Mary is modeling a willingness to do whatever Jesus says. She doesn't say, do whatever you want. She doesn't say, do whatever you like. She says, do whatever he tells you. You ever wonder, well, what has Jesus told me? It's right here, friend. It's in the Word. This is God's Word. And if you love God, if you love Jesus, then your posture towards Jesus is that of Mary. Do what he tells you. The fifth detail that matters is that a miracle has occurred. Water has been turned into wine. Water has been turned into wine. And there's been a lot of debate about, well, is this, is this real wine? Is this grape juice? Is it watered down wine? The wine in Jesus' day was alcoholic, but it was watered down. That's about all I'll say. That's not really the point of the passage. Here is the point of the passage. You might be sitting here thinking this morning, water into wine? That's impossible. And you're right. It's impossible for everyone except God. Think about it. Jesus is displaying the glory of God because Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. Now think about wine for a minute. How long does it take to prepare wine? And not just a little wine. We're told that this were six pots carrying, let's go with the conservative estimate, 20 gallons, 120 gallons of wine. How long under natural circumstances would that take? years. It takes years to plant, years to cultivate, years to grow, years to tend, years to yield, years to pick, years to press, years to prepare 120 gallons of wine, but not Jesus. He does it in an instant. How? Because he's God. Remember in creation, how does God create the universe? With his words. 
And Jesus is showing, he's not just telling, he's showing that he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And so we ought not think anything is impossible for God. Jesus is God, but the physical universe is under God's control. So Jesus is in control of the physical universe. What does that mean for you? He's in control of you. The breath in your lungs right now, Jesus is giving you that breath. The heartbeat you're feeling, Jesus is giving you that heartbeat. The food you eat comes from Jesus. The sun you see is being sustained by Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the universe and he puts a spotlight on his glory by creating 120 gallons of wine. Sixth, sixth detail. God's word has details that matter. Jesus is pointing us to the cross. All of this is pointing us to the cross. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus creates the wine in vats or jars that are intended for what? The Jewish rite of purification? What does that mean? Well, purification is the process by which you cleanse yourself. But Jewish purification didn't provide lasting cleansing. But Jesus fills the vats intended for purification with wine. What does wine become a symbol of in the New Testament? The blood of Jesus. Jesus is telling you that by his blood, he will purify you. He will wash you clean. It is his blood that John says will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not your deeds. It's not your giving. It's not your attendance. It's not your good days versus bad days. The only thing that will wash you clean is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary. And you access that victory through faith, not by works. Jesus is pointing us to the cross. How do we know? Well, notice what he says to his mom. He says, mom, my hour, woman, my hour has not yet come. What's he talking about? Hour? Hour in the book of John, chapters 15, 17, all point to the hour of his death. Jesus is saying, my hour is not yet come, but let me give you a little taste of what I'm going to do. I'm going to cleanse you with my blood. Seventh detail, Jesus is in control, but he's merciful. Notice After Mary says, do whatever he tells you, what does Jesus do? He does what Mary asks. And he uses these servants. Jesus displays his glory. He reminds us this morning, I'm in control. I've come to save you. He doesn't need us. He saves us. He uses us, but he saves us. But he's kind and he's merciful. Jesus could have said to Mary, Mary, that's not my concern. Leave me alone. But he says, I'm in charge. Bring me the vats of water. And he turns them into wine. So in this story, we're reminded that Jesus is a king, but he is a kind and gracious king. We're reminded that he hears our requests. He listens. This morning, the pain you're in, Jesus knows that. Your needs, Jesus knows them. 
Not only that, but he invites us to come before him, to go boldly by his blood into his presence through prayer, and to lay out our concerns before him. The Bible says, cast your cares because he cares for you. He cared for them, and he cares for you. So Jesus turns water into wine and displays his glory so that we will believe and follow him. Now, there are two outcomes that I want you to see. Two outcomes. Look, at me, look with me at verses 10. The master of the feast, in verse 9, calls the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The servants, it says in verse 9, they knew what happened. But in verse 10, the bridegroom doesn't know, and the master of the feast don't know. What's the point? What has Jesus just done? He's displayed his glory. What has he done? He's pointed us to the cross. What is he inviting us to do? Believe in him. But there's two outcomes. The servants know what happened. The disciples know what happened. And notice it says in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. One of the outcomes this morning is that you'll hear God's word and you will look to Jesus and you will believe in Jesus and you will be saved by Jesus and you will follow Jesus and your life will be a winding, uphill, challenging journey with Jesus. The other outcome is you'll be like this master of the feast and the bridegroom, clueless. Did you notice what it says in verse 10? It says that the bridegroom, he calls to the bridegroom and he says, everybody serves the good wine, but you have kept the good wine till now. They have no clue. And this is our world. Jesus created it, but people have no clue. Jesus has come and paid for our sins, but people have no clue. There are people who believe and there are people who live oblivious to the existence, the goodness, the salvation of Jesus. The Bible says there's two groups, sheep and goats. The Bible says on the day of judgment, all of humanity will be divided into two groups, those who believe and those who don't. And listen, friend, I don't know where you're at this morning, but you might be here thinking, I'm really in a third category. No, you're not. You either are looking to Jesus and trusting in Jesus and receiving from Jesus forgiveness of sins and eternal life or you are looking away and finding other explanations for things that clearly Jesus has clearly done he gave you life he gave you a sense of morality he has guided your life through all of the twists and turns he brought you here this morning he did all of that either you recognize it look and believe or you living in oblivious self-deceived disregarding Jesus there's only two outcomes So what does this have to do with you in 2023? How is this going to change your life in 2023? Let me give you a few points of application. First, it matters to you that Jesus is in control. It matters to you that Jesus is in control. Yes, we work. Yes, we plan. Yes, we have volition. And yes, God has not created us to be robots. But Jesus is the king, he's the master, he's in control. He reminds us of that this morning. He invites us to pray, but he's not a waiter at a restaurant that we, you know, press the bell or ring the bell and he runs to us. What do you want? Well, I want this. Okay, I'll bring it to you. 
Jesus isn't under our control, he's in control. I wonder if you found yourself angry at God because God hasn't done what you wanted him to do. And this morning, God wants you to let go of that anger and love Jesus because he's in control and actually come to place in your life where you go, thank you, Jesus, that you're in control and not me. Thank you that you don't give me everything I ask for. Thank you that you take me through hard times because you're shaping my character and you're teaching me to be humble. Jesus is in control. Number two, it matters that Jesus cares about the issues of your life. The wine ran out at the wedding. That's a big deal in first century hospitality culture. That'd be a little bit like throwing a pizza party and running out of pizza. Jesus cares about the things in your life. The bill you have to pay, the health situation you're going through, the family dynamics that are hard, the work situation that's challenging. Do I buy a new car or not? The little decisions of life, isn't it good to know? Jesus, the one who's in control of the universe, cares about the details and the concerns of your life. He doesn't tell us, shoo, leave me. He says what? Come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It matters. Number three, it matters that Jesus provides abundantly. Abundantly. When Jesus, when they ran out of wine, he didn't just provide one jar of wine or two jars of wine. He made more wine than they could have possibly drank. Why did he do that? Because if you will look to Jesus and believe in him, listen to me, friends, listen, you will not find him to be a stingy master. If you will look to Jesus, you will find him to be an abundantly gracious, overflowing master. The Bible uses a term to refer to salvation. Jesus' salvation is a double portion. He doesn't just cover your sins. He smothers it. He totally and completely casts your sins as far as is even possible to conceive. If you will commit to following Jesus, you will find him to be a loving, gracious, generous, merciful master. Number four, it matters to you that Jesus is cultivating faith. Why did Jesus in his sovereignty allow the wine to run out? He could have just worked it miraculously so the wine never ran out. Jesus wanted them to reach a point of need, go to him, Find him to be a master in control who's gracious and then reflect and believe and glorify him. And that's the same reason you're in a situation in your life that's hard, that's pressing you, that's testing you. Because Jesus wants you to be humble. He wants you to go to him. He wants you to see with patience how he'll provide. He wants you to find him to be good so that you'll believe in him and glorify him. I don't know about the situations of your life, but I do know that Jesus is cultivating faith. He's cultivating faith. Lastly, there are only two ways to respond to Jesus. You are either here this morning looking and trusting and receiving forgiveness, or you're looking to the world for alternative explanations for meaning and life, and you're trying to find forgiveness in some other place. And listen, will you just hear me? You'll never find it apart from Jesus. You'll never find meaning. You'll never find joy. You'll never find purpose. You will certainly never find forgiveness. And we all want those things. 
So this story about water and wine is about us seeing Jesus center stage, looking to him in our need and finding a gracious, saving master. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray for faith. Lord, we need faith. We believe, but help our unbelief. God, we confess that we doubt. We confess that we, we don't go to your word as we should. We confess that we turn to sinful things to find comfort. God, would you forgive us? Would you help us to look to Jesus? I pray for anyone here right now who just feels far from you. God, we sang earlier about how you run after us. Your goodness is running after us. Would we feel that pursuit? Would we stop running? Would we just receive your warm embrace? Would we hear your words, God, that you delight in saving sinners? You delight in repentance. Like the father who runs out to the prodigal, you will meet us. Your word says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. God, I pray for each person in this audience. I pray for the children in children's church. Would you fix our eyes on Jesus that we might behold his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.